We are in a, um, we're in a series where we're looking at uh, the major obstacles and um, challenges to the Christian faith. But before we get into that today, I want to review a couple of things. Um, this will be the last week of uh, observing the obstacles and the challenges. Um, next week, we're going to be jumping into um, when, when, you've, when you're confident that what we have is true, how should we respond? And so that'll be next week's message. Uh, but before we jump into today's message, I do want to review something. We're, I'm, I'm testing out language to figure out how to communicate our discipleship process at Grace Covenant Church. Uh, Jesus told the disciples, told his followers in Matthew chapter 28, go and make disciples of the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you to do, and I'll be with you even to the end of the ages. And, um, and so that raises a couple of questions. What's a disciple? And how do we make them, right? So they understood what a disciple was because they were disciples. Deci- a disciple is somebody who is a student of someone else. Um, and they, they take on the values, the lifestyle, and the priorities of the person uh, whom they are following. So in this case, the apostles were following Jesus. And they were taking on his values. They were taking on his message. They were taking on his lifestyle and his priorities. <clears throat> and as Jesus was getting ready to ascend into heaven... Um, so that he could send the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, now go and do the same thing that I've been doing to you. Go do this with other people. And that's what we call making disciples. And so uh, we're trying to figure out how can we communicate this in a way so that we don't turn it into like a study in Greek and Hebrew and it's, it's easily pre- reproducible. And so um, two weeks ago, I did a terrible job. I, I voted myself off the island in terms of that. And so last week I came back and I tried again. I just want to see if it's stuck. So, it's a quiz. <laughs> Who remembers step one? You just shout it out. Show up. So, if you made it today, congratulations. Step one is show up. And if this is new for you, go ahead and write it down. We just want to see if this works. Because the reality is there, there is this secret of just showing up. Last night, uh, JC and Rosa and I were laughing about just Try. Right? Just, sometimes it just comes down to just trying. You know, it's like, I don't want to. Well, just try. You know, I don't want to eat it. Just try. Try it. You might like it. That's what we tell our kids when it's time for vegetables. You know, and we sing a little, try it. You might like it. It's probably from Dora or something. <laughs> and kind of Dora-esque, isn't it? Um, but uh, just try. So show up. Um, you're not going to grow if you don't show up. And by putting a little skin in the game, it positions you in the right place to be able to receive something. It positions you well to be able to receive something. It positions you well to be able to minister. So that was step one. What is step two? Grow. Great. So there's some things that you can do as an individual that will help you grow. And there are some things that the church is doing in creating, in creating venues to help you grow. Who remembers any of the things that you can do to help yourself grow? Read your Bible. Pray. That's, those are two examples I gave. And then worship. You could also say worship. Right? And we're going to talk about giving in just a second. We made that a whole extra step. Not because you don't grow by giving. It's, yeah. You'll see. And then what are the things that Grace Covenant is doing to make it, uh, to create the right environment to help you grow? Small groups. Foundations classes. <laughs> so we'll get better at this part. <laughs> No, it's good. It's good. Does this make sense? Are you you flowing with me? So show up, grow, and then step three. 
Give. And so I, I broke give down into different parts. Just shout out one of them. We did great on the beginning. Show up. That's why the, step, that's why the first step is show up. Because <laughs> if you just show up, we'll get the rest, right? But if you don't show up, you're not going to get any of the rest of it. That's cool. That's cool. So <laughs> give. Uh, somebody said something. Time and service. Yeah, give up your time and your talent, right? Share. And in doing so, uh, you actually begin to exercise the things that God has placed in you for the purpose he's placed it in you. You know that if you've got a really good voice, your singing voice isn't just for you to sound good at home, right? He's given you a gift to reflect something of him to the world. And so, so singing in your closet or singing in the shower, you've, you've put a cap on the expression of that gift that God put in there to advance his kingdom. Now, now I wasn't given a voice like that, right? So some of us, we, we don't have that gift. And if you wonder if you have the gift, Shanique and some of our worship team members can help you determine what level of gift you, you have. <laughs> my mama loves the way I sing, you know, and, you know, I love it. My daughter's like, dad, you're the best singer in the world. And I'm like, I love you. <laughs> um, and so, and there, there's another way, the, the least popular way of giving is, is money, moolah, somebody said moolah, <laughs> yeah, giving of money, um, as, as we participate in this thing, and as we grow, the hope is that you would believe in it enough, that you would be growing in your relationship with God, that we would begin to believe what the Bible says about generosity, and then we would begin to act generously with the things that we have, and then somebody says, well, you know, I could be generous with all my other stuff, but, you know, why do I have to be generous with my with my, with my money. Well, because it's really generosity when it starts costing you something. You know, and it's like, I'll do everything except for that. That'd be a weird relationship anywhere else. Like, <laughs> I told my wife, I'm going to give you access to every area of my life. Just don't put your hands on my money. I'm going to go out to dinner with you. I'm going to talk to you. We're going to spend time together. I'm going to learn from you. I'm going to share my heart with you. I'm going to... I'm going to love you better than anybody's ever loved you, but the money's mine. That gets weird real quick, right? And all the, parent, all the married people are a little quiet because <laughs> it'll accidentally get there sometimes. Um, but that's another message. So, so we're going to give of our, of our money and of our time and of our talent, right? And then, and then the last step, who remembers this? Invite. Because we, we are on a journey of knowing Jesus and becoming like him. You know, I wish that we got saved and we were changed forever. I, I wish that like all of my sinful desires vanished when I surrendered my life to Jesus. Uh, but they didn't. It's, it, there, there's this process that God is bringing me through where he's refining me and putting pressure on me and hurting me a little bit to, to get the junk out of my life. Right? To let me know what's in there that he knew about all along and he loves me in spite of. He's just letting me know that it's there so we can, so we can get it out the way. So, but, so I'm on this journey of knowing Jesus. And, and most naturally, what I do when I encounter something good or something that I like, I invite people along with me. That's why I'm talking about food, like restaurants up here. I'm like, I feel like y'all got to know about Bonchon Chicken. You know, I'm going to fix my microphone. It's driving me nuts. I forgot to put it on. I was so caught up with Sean's message. Like, I almost walked up without the microphone on. I'm just going to clip it so it stops tickling me. 
Good, okay. So, so this last step of invite is like when you enjoy something and it's good, you, you want to bring people in on it with you, right? Like Los Totecos and Countryside. You know, they got like six restaurants, but the Countryside one is better than the other ones. I tested it. <laughs> but, uh, right, so you want to invite people into the things that you know are good. And so as God changes you, as he transforms you, as he, as, as he renews you, makes you, uh, gives you, uh, as you grow, it's inviting people into that growth with you. And so that's why that last step is invite. And we'll keep playing with it. I'm not sure if that's where we're going to land. I just want to test it out and see if it starts working. Right? So don't be surprised if it changes again. Hopefully it'll be more memorable. But show up, I think, is pretty good for the record. Okay. So um, it has been uh, really fun doing this series because I, I spend a lot of time engaging people who aren't Christians about the Christian faith. And I know that many of us in the room are afraid to do so because we're not sure what's on the other side of this conversation. And we're not sure what people will bring at us if we engage them in a conversation about faith. Uh, and so that keeps, us, that keeps us frozen. And so I want to encourage you. Uh, I hope this series has been encouraging to you and equipping for you so that you can feel confident to walk up to somebody and not be, not be worried if somebody brings up the pain problem. Or not be worried if somebody says, I believe in science, not God. Right? Hopefully you've got little nuggets of information so that at least you can be confident. You don't have to have everything memorized. You don't have to have everything to give back to them. It's just being confident in yourself and, and, and being able to say, you know what, I, I see where you're coming from. I do, but I'm confident in where I am. I'm standing on solid ground in my faith. And so that's why we're going through this series. Um, I identified kind of a, tr- uh, a process that people go through. And I think the primary obstacle to faith for people is the pain problem. Even before any of the intellectual arguments come to the surface, the pain problem is actually, is actually what leads a lot of people to intellectualism to find their, their, to be able to refute the existence of God, right? Pain exists in the world. Evil exists in the world. Therefore, I'm going to look somewhere else for my source of truth. And, and so, that I can re, so that I can reject God. And so we talked about the pain problem first. So last week we talked about the intellectual problems with God. Why? And, and I made it, I kind of highlighted that science doesn't disprove God. It brings you to a leaping off place where you've got to make your decision. And we talked about the different kinds of revelation. It is like a general revelation that we all know about God by the creation that's out in front of us. And we talked about how we know that Jesus actually was a man who existed historically. And I quoted not Bible sources to prove that, right? Agnostic uh, scholars, atheist scholars, acknowledge the existence of this man named Jesus who made these outrageous claims. And this is documented outside of Scripture, okay? So this week, what we're going to do, now that, we, now that we have a pretty solid case that there, there is a God, and there is this man named Jesus. We're going to turn our eyes to Scripture. Because in Scripture, we find out who God is and what his plan is. And so, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, says this about the Bible, about Scripture. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Father, I ask that you would open up our minds today. 
to understand the great care that you've taken throughout the generations to preserve your words, which are so valuable to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me speak to this passage very briefly, and then I, wanna, I want to talk about how we know that we have accurate text, how we know that we've got the same revelation, the same text, the same information that set the world on fire 2,000 years ago when a small group of disciples saw it and lives were changed by it. So some people look at this passage of Scripture and say, well, the Bible is somebody from the... No, a Christian looks at this and is like, great. So the, the, the Bible, all of Scripture is breathed out by God. So I can trust the whole Bible. Because as a Christian, you, you, trust, you trust the Bible. The problem is, if you don't trust the Bible, you don't trust that sentence in the Bible. And a non-Christian will say, well, you can't prove the Bible by saying the Bible says to trust it. Right? You know, that's like... <laughs> I don't know. I can't think of a good example. It's like they're putting up that sign in the restaurant. So like world's best cup of coffee because we decided. You know, it's like, how did you make that judgment? You're saying that about yourself, right? World's best dad, bought myself a mug. <laughs> Don't judge me. So all scriptures got, so for a Christian, we're like, we take great confidence in this. And we're like, this is all the ways that scripture is helpful to us because it's true and we can take it. And, but for a, for a non-Christian, they're like, well, no, you can't use this to prove this. They call it circular reasoning. Now, here's the trick about the Bible. When this was written by Paul, the apostle Paul, to Timothy, and it was passed around to all the churches, he wasn't talking about this letter. He was talking about the whole Old Testament. He's saying the entire Old Testament is valuable. The entire Old Testament can be used for all of these things. You know that part of the Bible that we largely ignore? Because that's like angry God. And we like happy God in the New Testament. No, <laughs> it's just because we don't understand it. And that's another, another time, another message. But it's not like an angry God and a happy God. It's one God throughout all, of genera- throughout all the generations demonstrating his love and his plan for redemption through all, you know, through all of history. I guess I did do it right now. Um, <laughs> but it's actually, it's actually, he's referring back to the Old Testament. Now, here's the neat thing. So we understand the Bible to include what we call the New Testament, all the books from uh, Matthew to, the, to Revelation, right? If you, if you open up your table of contents, it's probably Old Testament, New Testament. If you look in your, uh, your phone app, right, it's all just one long list. And so the dividing line in the long list is the book of Matthew. And everything from Matthew on uh, chronicles Jesus' time on earth and then what happened after Jesus ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit was poured out on the early church. Okay, so um, the reason we include the New Testament in what we call the Bible and the reason we believe that that verse even applies to the New Testament, not just the Old Testament that Paul spoke about, was the authority that the new church held these letters in, right? So the Old Testament is uh, the the redemptive plan of God and Jesus concealed. The New Testament is Jesus revealed. 
Okay, so in, in all throughout the Old Testament, you see all of these hints toward this coming Messiah. And then in the, in the New Testament, we see it explicitly stated that Jesus is the Messiah. And the effects of Jesus being the Messiah. Uh, and, and what the result was because he is God. Are you, are you with me so far? And so it, it's not circular reasoning. The Bible has 66 different books written by almost 50 different authors over 1,500 different years. And so it's not actually just one book. It's a book of books. It's a book of books and letters, right? So there is not circular reasoning when one refers to another any more than if four, four scholarly articles on like um, nachos quoted Las Taltecos I wouldn't say, you know, oh, you got that circular reasoning. It's like, no, four different people came to the same conclusion. Los Totecos is amazing. <laughs> I should go for sponsorships. That would, <laughs> you know, the NBA is putting little patches on their thing, on their jerseys next year. I'll be like, hey, I'll put a little Los Totecos package, <laughs> patch. <laughs> I'm not going to compromise the gospel. So, so you'd be like, there must be really something to this restaurant if four different articles are talking about this restaurant. Right? You're not going to be like, that's ridiculous. It's all in the same book. Well, it's different authors at different times saying the same thing. That creates more validity to the revelation that's in front of us. So I wasn't planning to talk about that. What I want to talk about is all the problems. I want to talk about the problems. Bible. It's ancient. It's a reflection of ancient societies and ancient cultures, right? I've, hear, I've heard that one a lot, especially on the college campus. Oh, that was, that was a reflection of a, of a previous generation of bygone eras of, of ancient people groups. Or it's been translated tons of times. We can't trust it. Or there are lots of errors. There are lots of contradictions, these kinds of arguments. Has anybody ever heard of these problems? I hope I'm not, I don't want to create problems for you. Like, that's the worst thing I could do. Uh, last week, somebody was like, you know, it was, it was somebody was like, yeah, you know, I, I'm doing great with blind faith. And I'm like, great. I hope I didn't mess you up. <laughs> you know? it, some people need more evidence than other people. Some people just wrestle with things that other people don't wrestle with. And so, you know, if, if you're not wrestling at all, if you've never had questions about this or ever have problems with this, um, just, just hang tight because you're going to talk to somebody who does at some point and you'll at least be able to say, I'm confident, right? Even if you can't remember any of this message, just I'm confident. Okay, so I want to say that while the Bible is ancient and while it was originally given to, to other cultures, it's not outdated. It's ancient and not outdated. Uh, I've already talked about how long it took to write it. We've already talked about how it's ancient. There's no denying that. The canon of Scripture, like when we closed the book and we said, okay, 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 no more letters. And we kind of like threw the different things out. Canon of Scripture was done, like 349 B.C. or right around there. And, and at that time, um, you know, so even if you go to then, that's still 1,800 years ago or something. Obviously, I don't do math. 1,700 years but it's not a reflection of the cultures that the word was given to. It was never a reflection of a culture. It's always been offensive to and, and grinding against the culture. When God gave the Ten Commandments, I talked about how great the Ten Commandments are and how silly we are to kick against them. 
uh, a couple of weeks ago. But as, as, as much as we like to think that ancient people were just God-fearing and loved God and just wanted to worship and just planted flowers and loved each other, it wasn't the case. When, when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses up on, the mount, up on the mountain, Moses walking down with these tablets, and as he was coming down, it's, it, they were partying so hard, it sounded like a war had broken out. I've been to some parties. <laughs> but I've never been to that kind of party. They were partying so hard that it sounded like war had broken out. Does that sound like uh, people who were excited to hear God say, uh, don't covet your neighbor's wife, right? Because they were not coveting. They were fully enjoying their neighbor's wife, right? They, I know it's, yeah, but that's the reality. So it's not a reflection of, of this culture. It was in opposition to the culture. It was saying, no, 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 no. Don't go in line with what you want to do. Come in line with how I want you to be because I know it's best. I was thinking uh, last night on the drive home, I, was, I had eaten some really good food, and I was sleepy. And, and I was like, man, maybe, you know, drunk driving isn't the only problem. <laughs> and then I started thinking about drunk driving, and I was like, drunk driving is so funny. You know, people want to be like, wow, churches, they put so much stress on, on, on people. You know, all these rules, you know, can't get drunk and stuff. And I'm like, why are we arguing about getting drunk. It's like you want to kill your brain cells and do things you're going to regret and have, feel terrible the next day. Like we're trying to do you a favor by saying, don't get drunk. Right? I'm just things I think about while I'm driving. An angel food cake. <laughs> um, so it's ancient. It's not, it's not outdated. And here's another way that it's not outdated. That uh, the things that Scripture deals with... Um, they weren't a reflection of that culture, but they weren't limited to that time either. Human condition hasn't changed over the thousands and thousands of years that we've existed. You know, you might feel like we've advanced because we think that people who lived 2,000 years ago were dumb, that they were uneducated, that they were somehow less human than we are and their desires were different than ours. But when you look in Scripture, you see people remarkably like us. They just didn't have iPhones, right? Or galaxies, droid right Anthony's like yep because we're more advanced um, so, so man's character and man's nature hasn't changed but neither has the character and the nature of God changed God's plan hasn't changed and his plan for humanity hasn't changed and so it's not outdated it's just as relevant as it ever was if anything, we see it shining brighter than we ever have because, because of technology. It highlights all these different ways that it does stand in exact opposition and in contradiction to what we would desire out, without Scripture. You know, it, just, a, just a note about people being less smart or less human than we are. You know, we still don't know how the Romans made concrete. Their concrete is far superior to our concrete but their recipe was burned in the library. And so we don't have their recipe and we still can't figure it out with all of our technology and all of our genius and all of our, all of our study and all of our history and all of our science. All of our, all of our computers, they still made better concrete than us 2,000 years ago. They weren't dumb. They just didn't have the same technology. 
<laughs> JC said it was more advanced. And he's an elder, so you have to trust him. <laughs> All right, so if they're people too, then they definitely made mistakes and stuff. Right, so what about all these changes and all these mistakes in the Bible? What about all these translations? Let's talk about them. The Bible was written by the hand of man at the inspiration of God. And um, when Jesus came on the scene, now I'm speaking of the Old Testament, but the same was true for the New Testament. When Jesus came on the scene as God incarnate, as God and man, He could have taken the authority that he had and created any new words that he wanted to. Instead, to establish his ministry, he read from the book of Isaiah. Instead, when questioned about what's the greatest commandment, he quoted the author of Deuteronomy. He quoted the author of Isaiah. He was using scripture to prove the validity of scripture and the validity of himself. And so my thought is, if Scripture's good enough for Jesus to use to prove God's plan, it's probably good enough for me to use to prove God's plan. If Jesus can trust the Bible, I can probably also trust the Bible. Did you follow that point? Because he could have just come with new revelation. He could have come in his new authority and just stated all new things. Instead, he's like, "You're, you're misunderstanding this. Understand it this way instead. So that's, that's, the, that's the first thing. So it was written by man, but if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. But there have been lots of changes. Um, I, I want to I talk about these changes. And, um, so let's go ahead. And I, I've got to go ahead and put up my journal entry up there so we can see that. So I'm going through this. I've got this exercise I'm doing. You don't have to be able to read it. I'll explain it. I've got this this project I'm doing. I'm trying to write out the whole Bible. I started last year. I want to write it out by hand because it forces me to slow down and see things I'd never seen before and ask questions I never wanted to ask before. And and it's proven to be harder than I expected because sometimes the Bible repeats itself in a funny way and I'm like, I've got to write this again because I'm lazy. And so I keep wanting to go into translation mode, but I'm like, no, no, no. I want to write this out so I slow down and I can look at it. And I see all sorts of really neat things that never stuck out to me before. Why did he say it this way instead of that way? So this is just a a page I I picked at random. This is from the book of Genesis. I don't even know what chapter it is. Oh, by the way, so verses and chapters were given not when they were written, right? So like the book of uh, 2 Timothy that I read from earlier, it was a letter written to Timothy, but... Chapters and verses were added in the 12th century and the 16th century, respectively, so that, so that we could better break it down and understand it. Does that make sense? Okay. So, so what I did is, is I write it down. So I'm going, but here's the problem. I'm making all sorts of mistakes. I am. It's so silly. It's just a page of text, and maybe you copy better than, than I do. Up on that third line, I skipped the word the, so I had to go back and write it in. And then I can't tell, I, I think it's the word is, but I wrote SS, and then I wrote an I over the S that is its blood. And I don't even know if it needed a, an apostrophe, but I didn't have one. And then in verse 8, in the middle of the page, I wrote, Then God said to Moses and to his sons, but it's about Noah. So I crossed out Moses and I wrote Noah above it because I'm like, What am I thinking? Moses is dead. No, he's not born yet. <laughs> 
that's what, yeah, I know the Bible. And then, and then later in verse, verse eight was rough for me. The earth with you as many, I skipped the word as come. So it's as many come, you know, out of the ark. And it's like as many as come. I'm just, I'm, I'm copying the ESV. So this wouldn't count as a translation. This just counts as a copy or a manuscript. And so down here, I really messed up like eight words in a row. Is the sign of the covenant that I have made with you. And really it says the covenant that I make between me and you. Right? And then I spelled earth with an F on the bottom line. I'm not a very good <laughs> scribe. I would have been fired for my scribe work. But that's not what it's for. The exercise, it's for me. Nobody, you know, here's the thing. If people were, if this was somehow the last remaining version of this passage of scripture, we would feel like we're in trouble. (laughs) This guy had a really hard time with some really simple words. And there are a lot of mistakes in this little passage. Now, here's the trick. If Sean did the same exercise, and if Mark did the exercise, and JC and Shanique, and and you two, Reese, if we all did this, we would all bring our mistakes to to the table. And so you'd need, uh, when you get enough manuscripts, you'd be able to lie it down next to each other. And we're all going to make different mistakes because we're different kinds of lazy and different kinds of, uh, of error-ridden, right? So Sean won't make any mistakes. So, <laughs> but what we'll do is, is we'll look at it and we'll say, well, this is all the same. So we can rest in knowing that this is, this is probably accurate. And then this is all the same. And, and JC's is different here, and David's is different here, and this one's different here, and this one's different here. But we can piece it all together and look at it and, and realize that what we have is actually pretty accurate idea of what we were all working off of. I am not aware. So some changes happen by accident, and sometimes people went back in, and they were like, ah, that doesn't make any sense. And so later people came and revised it and they'd cross it out. And that's not evidence that, that it was not, that it's not trustworthy that somebody came in and edited it. It's probably helpful that somebody came in and edited it. I would hope that if this was, again, that last remaining passage of scripture, my hope would be that somebody who came and saw this and was like, oh, that's wrong. Moses didn't do that. Right? That's not how you spell Noah. <laughs> I spelled it right. I spelled it right. If they came in and they saw that it was wrong, I would hope to God that they would come in and cross it out and write it and put a note in the margin. And what's really cool is because of, because of the way that, that this is, this is look, our, our understanding of who Jesus is and what God's plan is for us hinges on the Bible being accurate. And so, so throughout all the generations that have come, they have preserved the, the, the New Testament. They've preserved the Old Testament. They've taken great care to make sure that it's accurate. And, I, and I'm, so I'm so grateful for, for the value that people have placed on it generation after generation after generation. And uh, unfortunately, because it's so available to us, we let ours collect dust. So they've got all these things. So, um, of, so, so mistakes by mistake. And then some people change things to correct. And then sometimes um, I'm sure that people made changes on purpose because they wanted to hide something. Oh, you know what? It's not very credible to have women recognize Jesus at the tomb. Let's just get rid of that. 
And instead of Martha, let's just call her Mark. Right? So there were, some, there were some changes that were made intentionally. Maybe to hide something. Maybe just because they thought it was better. But again, when you've, got enough, when you've got enough manuscripts that you're able to hold up next to each other, you're able to compare and contrast and say, no, no, that's not accurate. Or if something shows up 300 years later. Right? So I wrote this last summer. When I do this again after I'm done with the Bible this time, I can compare this one to the one I write in like five years or 10 years or whenever I get to it, right? I'll be able to compare them. And if something is in my newer version that wasn't in my older version, I've got to call into question what's in my newer version. Are you with me? Okay, so, so we've got that. And then we, the, the translations thing. I've talked about translation, many different translations. How do we know that we can trust it? I've spoken about this before my sermon for a couple weeks, and so I'm going to kind of gloss over this. But the bottom line is that all accurate translations go back to the same manuscripts. Um, Some of the older translations of the Bible, King James, when it was written in the 1500s or 1600, 1611, it, it it doesn't have the benefit of some manuscripts that have been found since then. But it also uses words that don't make sense to us today, so we need to retranslate anyway. Um, it's got the word unicorn in it to describe like a powerful beast. You know, if we had unicorn in, <laughs> in the Bible, it'd be like, okay, so mythical fluffy characters that <laughs> fly on glitter trails. You know, like it takes away from the meaning of the passage, doesn't it? It, it takes you off to this completely different space where it's like, no, no, I'm pretty sure God wasn't trying to make a case for rainbows and sprinkles. I'm pretty sure he was trying to make a case for the creator of majestic and powerful beings. Um, so things like the word unicorn, we, we need to retranslate it as our language changes so that we stay accurate. But instead of just saying, oh, unicorn, that doesn't make sense to me. Let's call it an ox because that sounds big or a shark because those are mean. You know, like you can't, you can't just change it from the English that you found it in into an English that's comfortable to you, you've got to go back to the original languages and you've got to bring it from those original languages and say, okay, this is how we under, was this what we understand that word to mean? Okay? So, so that's, I've got full confidence in the translations that we have available to us because of the manuscripts that we have. And I'll show you some in just a minute. Um, and then, oh, you know what? I already talked about the mistakes because I'm going out of order. So mistakes and changes, we're good. We're, we're doing this. So we've got strength in numbers. Um, no ancient text comes close to the wealth of diverse pres- preservation of Scripture that we have of the New Testament. The, the, number of, the number of manuscripts that we have is remarkable, but also the age of these uh, manuscripts that we have are, are also uh, remarkable to us. Um, so we've got... Lots of copies, and we've got old copies. I want to talk about the lots of copies first. We have over 4,000 manuscripts. So when we look at a, when, when no, I say we, when the Hebrew and Greek scholars, when the, when the translators go back and they look at these manuscripts, they have a lot to work with. And so the mistakes like I was making in my journal entry um, are, are easily offset by the wealth of information available. There's this really catchy phrase. They'll say there are more variances or changes. The, the, the scholarly word is variance. 
the, the, the word that you might hear is changes. There are more changes in the New Testament than there are words in the New Testament. Well, yeah, if you've got 4,000 different scribes doing about as well as I did, but that doesn't actually mean anything because we got 4,000 manuscripts that we're working from. Right, so of course there are going to be lots and lots and lots of errors, but that, but it really just when again when you hold them up next to each other, the the true words, the intended words, come through very strongly. Um, there are so oh, so so we have over four thousand manuscripts that give us a better picture of what we're looking at. And if I make different mistakes than JC and Shanique and Sean and, and, and everybody else, we end up being able to draw these things out. Uh, this gentleman, F.F. Bruce, who is a, a scholar, I'm going to recommend his book at the end of this, says, fortunately, if the great number of uh, manuscripts increases, the number of scribal errors, it increases, the proportionate, proportionately, it increases proportionately the means of correcting such errors. So the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering original wording is not so large as it might be feared. In truth, it's remarkably small. What's he saying? He's saying because we have so many manuscripts, we can be very, very confident that we have the original, the original words, the original text, and if nothing else, the original meaning and the overarching truth. Uh, because the message, it's hard. You'd have to mess with a whole lot of stuff to mess with the narrative of Scripture. You'd have to change. You'd have to make big sweeping changes to the Bible to change what God says about his nature and what God says about the nature of man in Scripture. You have to make so many changes and so many big changes that it would be remarkably noticeable. And any changes made from this point on to the original manuscripts, it'd be like, hey, idiot, we scanned it in. Like, we've already got it. We're not hiding anything. We got it, and we'll put it online. I'm going to take you to a website in just a second. Um, I want to do it. Okay, in just a minute. So we, and we've got old copies. No other book comes close to. So, so with ancient manuscripts, the way this works is you've got, you've got the, um, what they call the autograph. That's the original one that was written. And then you've got manuscripts. We don't have the autographs. Because these are things that were written down on papyrus, it disintegrated, it got passed around, but people knew this. And as the church was expanding and advancing quickly, they took the autographs and they said, hey, let's make copies of this real quick so everybody can get copies of this. Hey, this letter that Paul wrote, let's, let's write this down because everybody needs to understand in the, from the book of Romans who Jesus is and what Jesus was up to and, and, and what the significance of him coming and rising from the dead is for us. Let's write this down and send these manuscripts all over the place so we don't have the autographs. It'd be awesome if we did, but they're probably all tore up and they're in tatters. You know, kind of like a Bible that you've loved for a really long time. It, 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 begins, to, it begins to break at the binding and it begins to, it, the paper begins to rip and then you realize that, man, I'm missing Colossians 1, <laughs> right? You know, and, and your kids throw up on it because they're in your lap and you're in, you wipe it off. And, but I mean, my paper Bible, my Bible is really resilient compared to papyrus, which was kind of rigid and easily breakable, but still protected. So they made, they made these manuscripts. And so we've got these manuscripts. This happened with all ancient texts, not just the Bible. Okay, so everything that we know about history was, was brought through this same process. And we don't have the artifacts for most other things either. We rely on the manuscripts. Now, here's what's exciting. I'm totally geeking out. 
we'll get back to preaching next week. How's that? Deal? Like the inspirational, like feel good stuff. This feels good to me. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Some really good news? I got distracted. What? Yeah, the exciting stuff. Oh, the manuscripts. The man- oh, okay, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> I got distracted by somebody like, I don't know. <laughs> All right, so, so the manuscripts. So the, the date of our manuscripts from the date of the autograph, the, the window is like this big. By this big, I mean the same century to a couple hundred years from, from the canonization of Scripture, from like when everything happened. And so here's some, here's some stats. And basically, the point of what I'm about to read you is that if we don't accept the Bible's uh, historicity, historical accuracy, if we don't accept that, then we need to throw out everything else we know about history also. You need to throw out Caesar. You need to throw out Plato. You need to throw out Aristotle. You need to throw out the history of Rome. You, like, you, everything means nothing if we don't accept the process that's used to examine and, and accept hist- ancient texts. Okay, so um, I'll, I'll read it the short version first, and then I'm going to read the long version. I wish I had it on the slide, but I don't. Caesar has 10 copies, but there's a 1,000-year gap. Tacitus, 20 copies, a 1,000-year gap. Plato, 7 copies, 1,200-year gap. F.F. Bruce, again, that same scholar, I'm going to recommend his book, said there's no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a great wealth of attestation than the New Testament. Um, The Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in 1947 are dated, so discovered recently, were dated from the 3rd century B.C., which puts it within a couple hundred years. And what's cool about these Dead Sea Scrolls is, so first of all, they, they predate by a thousand years, the previous, uh, the oldest manuscripts. It had been that long since we had found manuscripts. But they represent every Old Testament book, except for the book of Esther. But again, it's not a problem because we've got the book of Esther and all these other manuscripts. Um, as well as um, uh, other non-biblical writings. So sometimes this, uh, I'll tell you about that in a sec. There is word-for-word identity in more than 95% of the cases. And in 5% of the variation, it consists mostly of my kind of mistakes, slips of the pen and spelling. I mean, y'all, this is really, this is, hist- this is like archaeology and history and stuff. <laughs> Dealing with these mistakes and stuff. Okay, so, so <laughs> more about these old copies. And I'm sorry, I, again, if, if the geeking out is boring to you, but... Caesar's Gaelic Wars, talking about the same thing, composed between 58 and 50 BC. So we know when it was written. We know when the artifact was crafted. There are about 10 manuscripts available. The oldest is 900 years after the event. Parts of the Roman history composed between 59 BC and AD 17. So now we've got this range, right? The range exists on everything ancient. These are preserved in about 20 manuscripts, only one of which containing fragments is as old as the 4th century. But we accept that it's true. The history in the annals of the Roman historian Tacitus, composed around A.D. 100. These are preserved partially only in two manuscripts, one from the 9th century and one from the 11th century. 
Right, so the same thing that the Bible was going through, all these other texts from the same period were going through the same thing, but ours has thousands and thousands and thousands from a much closer time that it happened to. That's not when you want to make changes to a story. Right, you make changes to a story when nobody else knows. You claim secret revelation when you're afraid that somebody else might challenge. Oh, no, 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 we got secret revelation. We had a manuscript, we we lost it. My dog ate it. Right? So you're not going to claim these things and point to a thing and say, this, you can rely on this if you can actually just go and challenge it. Okay, so, um, so that's how I say it. F.F. Bruce says it this way. No classical scholar would listen to an argument about the authenticity of Herodotus or uh, Thucydides <laughs> is in doubt. He wouldn't, he wouldn't question that these guys' information is in doubt because the early manuscripts of their work, which are uh, of any use to us, are over, 13 years, uh, are over 13 years later than the originals. Like, we accept it everywhere else. But let's challenge the Bible. And if you're, not, if you're not comfortable, if you're not standing in your own shoes, if you can't just at least say, I'm okay, then... Uh, then you'll panic when you see that meme come across your Facebook page, right? Or somebody challenges you. You invite them to church. Well, I don't believe the Bible. It's been changed a bunch of times. So you could just say, I know it hasn't. And, you know, you could, I could email that out. You could print it off and you could say, hey, look, this is what my pastor did. He copied the Bible real bad. <laughs> but if, if other people copied the Bible real bad and we put it all together, we'd have a real good version of it. Um, so by 397 AD, there were lots of documents flying around. Some of them manuscripts from, from good autographs, and some of them crazy, some of them by well-meaning people, some of them with their own revelation, and they're like, oh, wow, this Jesus guy rose from the dead. He showed up to me. I'm going to write one too. Oh, I, he didn't show up to me, but my life's been changed. I'm going to write a letter too, and I'm going to circulate that. So you had all these extra manuscripts going around. And so in 397, what they did is they had a council come together, and they, and they said, okay, we got to decide now. Because the number of things is growing. There's, there's, uh, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's getting beyond itself. Extra stuff's being written. We need to decide what really is and what really isn't authentic. So that we can, we can put a stamp down on it and we could say, they didn't make decisions about anything except for what's valid in this thing. We call it the canon of scripture. And, you know, again, people say, well, that's when they decided that Jesus rose from the dead. No, Paul decided that when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, or 15, right? Well, the disciples saw that when they went to the grave on Easter morning. It would have just been Sunday, really, it just been morning. We call it Easter morning, clearly. <laughs> I didn't have to say that, did I, Sean? So the council came together and they decided what's credible and what's not. So we know that these, these edits that were made after this time are less credible than, than what was made before that time, right? So obviously anything, the closer you get to the original, the more accurate we expect it to be. So there was one, there was one other thing that I wanted to share with you and then, and then, then we'll close out. But it's, um, it's in, in relation to these old, old documents. So we've got this thing called the Codex uh, Sinaiticus, uh, do you have the... Oh, I didn't give it to you. I didn't give you the Codex Sinaiticus. It's basically... Uh, it's, it's from about 350 AD. And it was discovered on, on Mount Sinai in a monastery. And in it, it has 
the most complete version of the New Testament. Like the, the, it's the oldest complete manuscript of the New Testament. It has additional books in it. And so people want to go, oh, well, we can't trust it because, because this codex thing, it, it's got extra stuff. Well, codex, by definition, has extra stuff. It has extra, re- it's like a packet of information. They, they bound all these different things together, not because they're all of equal relevance. It'd be like, uh, it'd be like if with my Bible, I also had study notes, which we have. It'd be like if with my Bible, I also had a book by John Piper with it. And I was like, man, these two things are helping me a lot. John Piper tells me how to understand the Bible, but the Bible is my source of information, right? So, um, so I do want to, could you put up that, that slide that says manuscripts? And then I'll, I'm just going to land. Um, there's this really cool website if you want to poke around on it. It's the Center for the Study of New Testament manuscripts. And on it, you can see these things. If anything wanted to be hidden, we wouldn't thoroughly document and thoroughly post all of it up on the internet. And so it doesn't mean anything to me because I don't understand it. (laughs) But it's just, it's remarkable to go back and look and you can click through and you can scroll in and you can see the little bits and pieces and it tells you what this is. This is from the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy all these little fragments. And you get enough of the fragments together and you get the full picture of what the original text was so that we can have confidence in the Bible. Whew. So let me jump back real quick. To um, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17. Sean, you can go ahead and come up. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When I read that passage, I have absolute confidence in the text that's before me. And I would encourage you this week to taste and see. Crack it open. Read it for five minutes, for five days this week, and see if God doesn't start to speak to you. And see if the Holy Spirit doesn't start to move on your heart. See if the Bible doesn't start to do the work that it promises that it will do in our life. Amen.